The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I am joined today. Well, I'll let my guest introduce himself. Yes. So um, I'm a software engineer and I'm based in the UK. And I'm mainly, um, like most of my experience is in designing, implementing, and performance testing training systems. And there's a big focus on low latency. So um, mm-hmm. that would be like my job title, I'd say. Right. Because, and, and before we get into that, we'll say, you want to be anonymous. It's good to say this at the start of the episode, because people will ask, why didn't he say his name once the whole time? You know, you want to remain anonymous in your, even though you're anonymous, your thoughts are your own, not your company's, right? Yes. Agreed. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And I, you know, in the title, we put low latency developer, one of those conversations I often have with, I don't know what you would call it, real world people that either work in coding or uh, game development or the semiconductor industry. Finding the title is often hard because it's a balance of, well, telling people literally what you do in the title so they have an idea of what it is, but then also not using whatever some official job titles are where <laughs> someone sees that and has no idea what that means. So so we put low latency developer. What exactly do you do? Like, How, how would you describe your day-to-day work and the industry you work in? Uh, so I work in the finance industry. So what I kind of like deal with is, like I, like I was saying earlier, designing, implementing, and testing low latency frameworks that are used in trading systems. And these frameworks uh, make up, for example, like the pricing and the order execution components. So in a way, the way to sum, sum it up would be um, like, all the prices that you get from a exchange, mm-hmm. all the way to the screen that the trader looks at, and then when that person presses a puts an order through that order going all the way back to the exchange again for it to be matched. So I'm kind of involved in that entire life cycle, right? And we were talking offline when we were planning this episode. I think if I remember correctly, you pointed out that like everything we see like on Reuters or, uh, you know, on any, any terminal that shows a bunch of prices, whether it's gold, oil, a stock price, Bitcoin, maybe, you know, all of those are coming from different locations. Like one's a blockchain, one's oil, maybe in another country, or it's taking in data from a bunch of countries, you know? So even though we all see it in one feed, there are somewhere there's a physical location or something that's inputting the price. And your job, if I'm remembering correctly, is to make all of it appear instant on one like output to someone trying to buy any of these at the same time. But they're all, there's also like kind of a, almost like supply chain of getting that price to the terminal. And they're all entirely different commodities. Yeah, exactly. So with a bank of this kind of like type of scale, you'd be looking at, um, supporting more than one 
instrument type. So for example, in the FX market, uh, you'd be dealing with spots and you'd also deal with um, futures, which are basically just contracts. And ideally, when you're dealing with so many different exchanges, one thing you will notice is that each of them behave completely different. So mm-hmm. from like the protocol that they use, like some of them use like a really efficient, simple binary encoding protocol. And some of them will use like a really slow XML protocol. So my okay. job is kind of like to normalize it in a way where everyone else, like the traders or even any other team that is using this data, wouldn't know the difference. So I'm effectively looking at normalizing the data in a way that no one else needs to worry about all the small differences between all the different markets that we support. Right. And this type of job, I think, is one that a lot of people don't know exists. And I actually did know about it because I had heard, read, I don't know, years ago, this article talking about how trading firms, hedge funds, anyone involved in the stock market in the United States were buying up real estate for absurd prices near the New York Stock Exchange to make sure their servers can communicate. You know, it. you can't send data faster than the speed of light yet, at least. Yes. <laughs> and so it's, it. even though that sounds instant, it's not, it's not instant. You know, you, you can notice things, I mean, even just with your eye, actually, at a certain rate where there's a delay and getting that server, you know, within a block or even, I know some people have access to like, a hundred feet or something of the New York Stock Exchange can make a difference in who executes micro trades faster, right? Exactly. Um, so, like in the past, I would say in FX, um, some of the larger banks have been relying on their scale to compete. Um, mm-hmm. But over the years, um, I've noticed, like since I've joined, um, that exchanges have moved towards lower conflation periods. So, I remember when I joined like some of the primary markets that you mentioned, like Reuters, they would transfer market data at a rate of like every 150 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. But over the last three years, they've introduced even faster feeds that can now transfer market data at speeds of like five milliseconds. Mm-hmm. So as we get closer and closer to real time, it's important that not only I'm able to normalize that data and pass it on to the algorithms that would react based off these different prices, it's more important that all the platforms like within the bank can handle that volume. Mm-hmm. Because if, if it's just one component that can handle it and all the downstream components um, are struggling to keep up, then or be causing more harm than good. So in a way, it's about finding the right balance rather than just... And removing bottlenecks, making sure there are no bottlenecks. Exactly. So um, when, like, when you sort of like first go about low-latency project, there's a lot of research that needs to kind of go into analyzing if the infrastructure can deal with that quick data in a way. It's interesting because when I think about this line of work, I go, well, there's a lot of principles involved with anyone who's interested in PC gaming or 
I mean, again, anything having to do with removing bottlenecks. What, what, what is your background then? Like, you go as far back as you want. You know, you can tell us where you were born, or at the very least, like, what type of degree did you get? Did you do PC gaming in the past? I mean, yeah, where did you come from? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I grew up in Germany. So basically, I guess it all kind of like started when I was seven years old. It was around the time when my parents bought us a PC. And kind of like being just the youngest in the family, um, at first, I didn't get to use it as much. It's like my older mm-hmm. siblings. And one thing I noticed is that they quickly got kind of like bored of it because we didn't have mm. an internet connection at the time. So there's only so much you can do on it. And mm. for whatever reason, I just never lost interest because I would just keep looking at that box you know, those small, back then they were all just white PCs, like white boxes. <laughs> yeah, pretty ugly. Yeah. And I just couldn't stop kind of like thinking about them. Like I just kept wondering what was actually going on inside. Mm-hmm. Like the screen was fine. It, it just reminded me of a TV. But the PC case itself, like I was just really intrigued. And that went on for like a quite, for quite a few years. And um, I think it was like, I was like 10 years old when we first got like dial-up internet. Mm-hmm. And it was the type of internet where no one could make a phone call if you went yeah, on Yeah, no one could really use it if you ask me. <laughs> like I remember in the 90s, internet was there, but I never really used it until 2004. I mean, it, it just wasn't useful, right? Exactly. So I managed to get uh, one hour a day after school. Um, that's what my parents mm-hmm. said. Uh, you can use it for one hour. And I pretty much spent that one hour looking at um, things I couldn't afford. So just reviews for uh, Pentium 4s. And I think at the time it was like Athlon mm-hmm. XBs. And um, at some point, I think just a few years later, so I'm at this point probably like 11 or 12 years old, um, I asked them if I could build a PC. Mm-hmm. And um, like for the next six months, they just said no. There's no way. Um, like one of the reasons was um, back then, kind of like spending that type of money online was considered really risky. Oh. Um, because especially in the UK, we didn't have like the New Egg sort of similar website to New Egg mm-hmm. in the UK. They're all like small stores that no one kind of heard of. And you were taking a bit of a leap of faith when you ordered that much from them. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I ended up basically specking it out I, and I got like an Athlon XB uh, 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had 512 MB RAM and I really wanted a GeForce 4. But I think because of the timing, uh, they just went out of stock. So I started looking at reviews again. I think most of the reviews said that the FX 5800 Ultra wasn't that good. Because it's like really mm-hmm. loud, used a lot of power. I have heard it. It's uh, it it the the noise. I don't even know what I could compare it to. Like people call the two ninety X loud, the reference model, and it's like, yeah, well, the four eighty, the GTX four eighty was a lot louder than that, and then the this is a lot louder than that. So it's like two entire tiers above what people considered loud just five years ago. And I think when you compare it to any graphics cards now, really any, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I honestly, I'm gonna, like, I, I don't complain about noise ever <laughs> with PCs after hearing how, how loud some graphics cards were 15 years ago. Yeah, like I don't even think headphones would do a good job 
of blocking off mm. that sound. Um, and for whatever reason, I think it must have been my age at the time, I was just so stuck on that design. The fact that it was a DDR2 instead of DDR and um, just the high clock speeds and the way it looked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up buying one and it was probably the biggest mistake I made when it comes to PCs. Most people make look back and say they should have done something differently with their first build. So it would be weird if it was perfect. Exactly. Uh, but with this one, it was just like, because, you know, um, I felt like it was just a lot of money at the time. It was like 360 mm. pounds. And I guess it's nothing compared to like a 2,000 pound graphics card today, which they're, you know, some of them are going for. Well, you said you spent 360 pounds? Yes. So at the time, so like 200 was a lot for a graphics card. So 360 was just kind of unheard of at the time. So what was that? What year was that? Uh, 2003. Well, that would be worth, yeah, be worth about $600 now or 600 pounds, I should say now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's, you're right. Even with inflation, it's graphics cards are about a triple what they used to be to a certain degree. Yeah. And I remember just feeling so bad about it because, um, I didn't, I was just too young to have like a, uh, eBay account to even try and sell Mm -hmm. it off. So I just didn't know what to do with it tried to play some games that came with it, with, with the graphics card itself, and everything just seemed quite slow. Didn't seem to like, perform the way I expected it to. At least for how loud it is, you would expect more. <laughs> exactly, and the money as well. So I thought, um, I think it was, a, it, was, it was around then when I decided that I needed to learn a lot more about computers. So I joined forums mm-hmm. and um, I pretty much spent a lot of time there kind of like supplementing the reading that I was doing with reviews. Uh, because with reviews nowadays... Well, I think they were better back then on average. I do feel like the average reviewer is nowhere near as good as they were in the mid-2000s, though. Or would you agree with that? Although you're saying a lot of those reviews left you wanting. Um, no, I, I think I went into it with the wrong mindset. Uh, I think oh. I, I think I really wanted to like it because of the way it looked, and it was just so different to any other graphics card before it. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, after that, I just pretty much decided that I needed to just learn a lot more. And forums at the time was the answer, and I would just spend so much time just reading, just talking to everyone else on there about their experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, so okay, you you got into PC gaming at an early age. Um, I'd say really early age, actually, for actually building one. I don't think most people build them until they're teenagers. And, you know, what what did you go to college to study, though? And, like, you know, what got you into this line of work? Yeah, so um, at university, I studied computer science. Like, one subject that I found really interesting was, like, algorithms and optimizations. So this, mm-hmm. it, 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 I think it's just maybe just just a hobby. Or looking at improving things. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of like translated over to software as well at that time. Like for my master's project, I was looking at, every, like everything I was kind of looking at revolved around performance, trying to do as many calculations as possible. So for example, like my, uh, my lecturer, he asked me to work on this GPS navigation system mm-hmm. that could work out the route for like a city, like a thousand nodes. And mm-hmm. 
I'll just keep going more and more. Like I'll try download a map with like 4,000 nodes and I tried to scale it as much as I could. And so does notes mean like individual locations on it or what is? Yes, okay. Locations. So like just points of interest on the map up to 4,000. Okay. Exactly. Um, and then the edges. Uh, so, so if you, you could, you could convert like a map into a tree. So where we, where you would have like a node and the mm-hmm. roads would be the edges between the nodes. Oh, okay. I see. And, um, and I'll just keep pushing it further and further. Um, to the point where I spent most of my time just writing the code and I spent even less and less time doing the documentation, which was kind of like most of the <laughs> yeah, most of the marks. How they gradient stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was around then when I knew that I really wanted to get into like some form of high performance computing. Mm-hmm. And optimization. Yeah. And so were there you know, so so did like a recruiter reach out to you for this position or did you specifically see this type of job and go, that's what I want to do? No, so uh, initially I was looking for companies that were doing this type of work. So I applied for a bank and um, mm-hmm. got the job. And the way the kind of like the graduate scheme works is that you get put into a random team at first um, for like mm-hmm. the first 10 months. And then for yeah. the second rotation, you would go and interview with like all the different teams and try to get a role. And for the first rotation, I was put in a team which was completely opposite to high frequency uh, trading or anything mm-hmm. related to low latency. So it was basically like a sort of like a back office role where most of the emphasis was on doing batch processing. Mm-hmm. And I remember like being asked to work on this um, stored procedure, which was really, really complicated. And it was almost easier to rewrite it than to add functionality mm-hmm. to the existing one. So yeah. uh, I went about, you know, just rewriting it. And it's one of those stored procedures that kind of just run every day during off-peak hours. And it takes six hours to complete. And when I rewrote it, it took less than one hour. It took around 40 40 odd minutes to complete. Mm-hmm. So I was really like happy with it. And I reached out, uh, I called my manager over and I told him. And I remember his response. He was impressed, but he said, Yeah, we don't really care about that type of stuff here. Like whether it takes one hour <laughs> or whether it takes 10 hours, it's all T plus one um, data. We don't really care. And mm-hmm. it was at that moment when I kind of just went on a hunt, like on a search to find some low latency work. Um, so like when I moved into my next team where, um, you know, there was a kind of like a focus on low latency, I almost noticed the opposite where a lot of effort was spent on automating things, uh, mm-hmm. things that we didn't want to spend time on. We would try and automate almost everything. Uh, like even something that would take 20 minutes, if we could bring it down to 10 minutes, it was deemed to be worth it. Mm-hmm. For myself personally, I thought, that was pushing it a bit too much, like cutting it mm-hmm. to work on something to just bring it from 20 minutes to 10 minutes. But it, it was nice to see that contrast between the two teams at the same place, at the same company. All right. So the next question I want to ask before we start getting into some reader mails here is like, what literally is your job then? And what are, what, you know, what do you get told to do? And then how much time do you have? And then what is the problem you're solving literally sometimes? Yeah. So, um, 
with the components that I work on mostly, um, I'm kind of in the middle of a lot of different moving parts. Um, so for example, if I was asked to implement a new trading system in a new region, um, mm-hmm. it could sometimes take up to a year, depending on the region and if there's like any language barriers in that region. It could sometimes take up to a year to get the servers and set up all the connectivity that's required. You mean like for taking in some input in a part of the world, right? It's like we're going to start taking in inputs from here, maybe for this oil here or this mineral here. All right, find a way to make this as instant as possible to our main servers. That's what you'll be told to do? Uh, No, so for example, if we have a trading system in, say, EMEA, and we now mm-hmm. want it to expand to APAC, uh, we would have mm-hmm. to replicate the whole thing. Uh, so we would need co-location servers with like cross-connects to those exchanges. And just setting up those servers, um, just getting okay. those servers um, and having all the connectivity done sometimes can take up to a year. And mm-hmm. what would then happen is just naturally the amount of time that I get to write the code would decrease. Because as far as like the business is concerned, this project's been on the to-do list for a year now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just one of those ones that it's really hard to plan for sometimes. Right. Because like it's not until you actually know where it is, when it is, and what servers they'll use that you can write the code to reduce latency as much as possible, right? Like you can plan as much as... That, I think you were telling me this offline. You can plan as much as possible. But with how optimized you try to make the code, you literally need to know exactly what you're working with. And you just don't until it's getting set up, right? Exactly. You, you can kind of compare it to like consoles even. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It would be really difficult to do, you know, close to the metal coding if you don't have the console available. Like, for example, with some of these brand new exchanges, they will give you some 30-page document uh, with like sort of like basic API and how they expect you to deal with the messages that are coming in. Mm-hmm. But between the time that they give you this documentation and when the feed actually goes live, it, the design of their feed can change. Mm-hmm. So you could be writing code um, against this API, but then you find out that a few weeks before they've changed it. So now you're having to kind of like retest everything, redesign things. Um, so sometimes you have to use experience that you've gained with another exchange kind of use Mm -hmm. it here to kind of like look out for potential kind of like risks and stuff. Yeah, what you're talking about, I've heard very similar things described about the lead up to the launch of the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. And one of the main driving factors that a lot of launch games ran better on the PS5 was their dev kits were programmed, the software on their dev kits was more easily translatable into the final thing. And I, I keep hearing, even to this day, that they just keep updating the DirectX 12 API version that the Xbox... It's probably I'm probably not describing it that well, but I think people get the idea. Uh, for the Xbox Series X, that they keep updating it more and more and more, that it wasn't really finished at launch. And that's why you see some games... Um, there's other factors, obviously, as well, but that's why you see a lot of games still have performance problems. And 
Like, yeah, I mean, what you're describing is developers tell me, oh, we just got this update. Now we just have to figure it all out and try to translate it. And whether it's a new console launch or not, though, that still happens where, you know, you try to make the game and then there's there are people there that literally just optimize the final build so it actually runs well. Yeah, um, like with some with some uh, exchanges, they try to help you as much as possible. So even mm-hmm. if the production feed isn't up and running, um, they might give you uh, connectivity details to connect to like a UAT or like a dev environment. Or if they don't have that in place, they might give you some sample messages that you can just replay uh, yourself mm-hmm. and you can try simulate that data flow. Um, I've dealt recently actually um, with some exchanges where they just don't have anything to give you. Mm-hmm. And you have to wait for them to finish their work before you can start almost doing your work. And at that point... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's frustrating. Exactly. And at that point, you're kind of racing to compete with mm-hmm. other banks to get there first. Because whoever gets there first almost ends up getting some head start there. But so let me start getting into some of these reader mails, which of course you guys can submit to guests if you support us on Patreon. Um, let's see. Let's start with the ninth dudes. Yeah. Hello, and thank you for being the guest this week. I know that the financial markets are on the bleeding edge when it comes to network latency and trying to cut it down, but I'm unaware of where the current bottleneck is when it comes to fiber latency. Could you explain where fiber is stuck at and what is being done to overcome the latency there? And to build off that question, how much of that technology do you see trickling down to consumer tech to improve game latency for streaming? And what do you see as the primary challenge in the market? Again, thank you for your time and being the guest this week. Yeah. Um, so I think a network engineer might do this question a bit more justice. Um, I'll, try, I'll try my best. Um, so I mm-hmm. think like one of the key considerations here would be distance. So which is one of the reasons why banks, um, like you mentioned earlier, would almost fight over um, getting co-locations like they want an apartment like just five feet closer to the new york stock exchange relative to another flat right yeah no actually this is even one step further so this is like having a server right next to the exchanges um server Mm -hmm. and it would have one cable and Mm -hmm. um it would be a direct connection right so in terms of like um packet loss or even latency it would be almost completely minimized. Mm -hmm. But it comes with its own drawbacks where A, obviously it's highly contested. So it's really difficult to get more servers. Mm -hmm. And even like the choice of servers, like different variety might be a bit more difficult than a traditional data center. And also the cost is really, really high. And because like in finance, you wouldn't necessarily need all your applications to run on these servers. What you would then Mm -hmm. do is just put the main latency-sensitive ones to run those. And you might have some sort of booking systems or database-related applications running somewhere cheaper, somewhere further away. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the cost, one thing like we do is like for our UAT and dev environments, we would use a traditional internet connection. Um, It's a bit of a good trade-off for us because... 
What do you, what do you mean traditional internet connection? I don't know the difference between a traditional and non-traditional one. Yeah, so uh, in that sense, the market data and the trades would flow over a internet connection, so over fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be in the same data center. Okay. So it would be a lot slower, but if, we, if you're just doing UAT testing, you probably don't need very low latency. Well, so it's, it sounds like you're saying, I mean, for the most part, it's been done what can be done, right, to reduce latency, right? And that most latency work, correct me if I'm wrong, then, is just about reducing latency for high-frequency stuff more so than... Because like distance is distance, and most of those problems have been solved. Am I right? Yeah. So, like the as much as they can be. <laughs> yeah. For now, I would say um, the most like m- most of the latency issues after that would be within your own sort of platform. So um, mm-hmm. application latencies, or if you have one server communicating with, with another one using a messaging framework, how efficient is that messaging framework? And how mm-hmm. efficient is the message in terms of just protocol that you're using? Is it like a really small packet um, where you have everything encoded using simple binary? Or is it like a huge uh, message with like XML? Mm-hmm. Um, so these are like optimized optimizations that you can do without even having to change your hardware. And there's a huge mm-hmm. kind of like benefit to doing so. Um, like some of the work I've done early on was to rewrite some of the legacy um, pricing components. And just on the application side alone, we were able to see like a difference of roughly 10 times. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I, I think at a certain point then, a lot of things having to do with lag and delay at this point, it depends on the, like, and I'm going to, you know, bring up gaming. It depends on the game. Some game servers just still are not as good as others for sure. But a lot of it has to do with your communication itself inside of your house to the game, right? Servers. And like, for instance, I just don't use Wi-Fi for gaming. Like, it's just, I'm sorry, it's just never, like, I will say Wi-Fi 6, I've tried now, and it is much closer to Ethernet performance than anything before it. But a a lot of the times you don't need any faster internet. It's just latency. You, You just need to make sure you have a router that's not overloaded. No, that's true. Um, so the distance thing would be one way to solve it. Um, mm-hmm. Another one would be to kind of like decide whether you actually need every piece of information. Right. Um, so for example, if you get prices at a, let's just use random numbers. So if you get prices at a rate of say 1000 per minute and your algo strategies can only process a hundred, mm-hmm. um, would you want them to process the first hundred? Because then mm. what would happen then is they, by the time they get to the remaining 900, uh, they're working on stale data. Mm-hmm. And by that point, the price will have moved already. And we're starting to see this now with gaming as well, like with NVIDIA Reflex. Um, the way it works, um, if I understand it correctly, is the CPU gives it just about the right amount of frames to render. And mm-hmm. it won't overload the render buffer uh, in advance like it would normally do. Um, so it's nice to kind of see these things on the gaming side. But mm-hmm. the distance challenge is really difficult, I think. 
Well, so if I may speculate, then I know you you're not a network engineer, but like I, I would be interested in what your opinion is because I keep hearing and I've gotten in debates on broken silicons with some really, you know, fantastic guests like John Petty who insists, oh, streaming games is going to be the future. We just need to make it work better. And I'm like, is it possible for it to work that much better than what we have now? Because from where I'm sitting, it seems like we've reduced it a lot and it still just doesn't feel that good to a lot of people. I mean, how much more can we do to make streaming games work better? Because there just is that delay there anytime I've tried it. Yeah, um, so I think with games, um, the good thing is that you're dealing with millisecond um, latency. Mm -hmm. Whereas in trading, you're dealing with microseconds, uh, which Mm -hmm. is what makes it theoretically a lot harder to do. But the key challenge will be, even if you live close to one of your ISP's servers, Mm -hmm. um, like for example, the server that uh, GeForce Now or Google Mm -hmm. Stadia uses, if that is too far away, then you will always encounter lag. So mm-hmm. one way to kind of get around that would be maybe having those two co-located. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't really know how feasible that would be for gaming. Um, seems quite expensive. See, that that's kind of what I thought too. And the argument I made is, you know, I'm sure there's things we can do. Like you can just build servers in every city, I guess, to stream the game to someone. But at a certain point, how much... How many of these servers are you building in each city? How expensive is this? Is this ever going to apply to some place in a profitable way that's not a major city where you really have that giant of a market? And can it really compete with a $400 box? Because I think people keep forgetting that like a $400 box is cheap. (laughs) And if you have to compress the image over the internet anyways, is it going to look better than the $400 box. Maybe it does right now, but what happens when the new $400 box comes out? Yeah, I think um, I think we've seen that kind of like dedicated has always been slightly better than having something in the cloud. I think the main benefit of game streaming is that it's convenient. A bit like how consoles mm-hmm. were when they first came out. Um, they yeah. were just super convenient. All you had to do was go and buy a game and plug it in and you would kind of just get on with it. Um, but now, I feel like games consoles have just come so close to PCs where mm-hmm. you have to install updates, um, everything's online, um, there are performance settings now and there's like more than one console version as well. And then when mm-hmm. you buy it, three years later, there's a new refresh so um, I think with game streaming, um, one way to possibly look at this also is to use more efficient protocols. So I think they're mm-hmm. already doing this, but um, like, so for example, they're using UDP to trans- transmit the video. And then you could use something like video acceleration on the client side to try mm-hmm. and reduce the latency as, pos- as much as possible. So just doing things like that, what we kind of focus on in finance because we, we kind of realized over the last few years that hardware is really difficult to change. It's mm-hmm. just a long process. So most of the benefit that we get is from software optimizations. So I would assume that the game industry probably be doing the same thing at some point. So you do think that there is still room 
to improve the streaming performance a lot for games, though, over what we have now. Yeah, maybe not for all games. I think competitive first-person shooter games will be uh, out of the question, I think, for the time being. Because mm-hmm. for those, I think you need like less than 50 milliseconds. For all the other games, I think we're at like 200 milliseconds with, mm-hmm. um, with like game streaming. Um, I think if we can bring it up, bring it to like say 50 to 100, I think it would be a mm-hmm. good experience. Good enough experience, I think. Yeah. I guess the one question I would also have, though, as kind of a counter argument is, well, we talked about ways of reducing latency and improving networks. I mean, going hand in hand with that, can't we also just install games faster too? So couldn't you see a future, though, where, well, we've made this latency so low that it's so convenient to stream it quickly. But then what if it actually just takes one minute to download a 100 gigabyte game in a few years? Wouldn't you rather just actually install it, guys? No, exactly. Um, I, th- I think we- I'm just pointing out things that I people who see this streaming future maybe haven't thought of is as you improve the network and internet, you're also going to improve how quickly you can install the game. Like when I use Steam servers, I, it's uh, I have like a pretty I have a cheaper you know I don't have the the fastest internet, and even then it's like God at this point I think like almost twenty thirty megabytes a second. I install pretty big games in like five minutes. Yeah, I mean like especially in the UK, I've heard about. Um... That there's like this plan to get one gig internet um, mm. in every household um, in the next few years. So I think um, about time. By the way, anytime I stay in England, I feel like the internet's a little lower speed on average compared to other countries. No offense. No, no, no. It's true. I think it depends on where you stay as well. Um, like some mm-hmm. places are a lot better. Um, so where I live, I, I'm, I managed to get one gig recently, uh, two months ago. Okay. Um, I know some places that still have like 20 or less. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it was brutal in college, uh, a little bit there <laughs> for a few months. Um, but, uh, so let's, let's move on to, I think this is an interesting question from Fiber Venom. He says, when dealing with uptime on the servers for financial high frequency trading, who would be in trouble in terms of a financial loss if the servers ever go down? Would it be the company you bought the servers from, or is it all on you? Um, I think it would largely depend on the recourse. So, for example, if it was change-related, or if there was like a hardware f- failure, if there was like a network issue. And um, usually what happens is like each case would be investigated, and mm. there would be like some comprehensive documentation. And some things... Like you can't really plan for like hardware failure. There's n- I'm not really sure how you would go about uh, preventing that, but mm-hmm. we kind of like try our best because you know resilience is really important in finance. So one thing we try and do is we run components in pairs. So for example, if one server goes down, um, the backup server would take over within ten seconds, mm-hmm. and um, if the entire data center, um, you know. If for whatever reason that happened, um, we would just ask traders to move to a different region. So, for example, if they're logged mm-hmm. into the EMEA region, we would just ask them to log into NAM for the remainder of the time until we get it resolved. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of like hardware failures, I, I assume there's just backup servers and then backup components on hand, right, for a lot of these locations. And you you just plan as best as you can what you think you might need if something failed, right? Yes, exactly. And we kind of like prevent um, certain upgrades or even changes 
uh, like issues caused by them by mimicking the uptime of the exchanges. So they mm-hmm. come up on a Sunday and they would usually shut down on a Friday. And most of our kind of like significant changes would go in on a, on a Friday night or like on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. All right. So it sounds like your job involves a lot of crunch. In an offline discussion, you talked about how it could be compared to crunch in the gaming industry. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? How much of the crunch do you think is just always going to be there and is inherent in coding? And how much of it, at least from your perspective, can be removed uh, realistically? Yeah. Uh, so in my, from my perspective, most of the crunch was usually from dependencies. Uh, so like, like I was saying earlier, there was always something that I needed to happen before mm-hmm. I could start doing my work. And because the project had already started at the time, it would always look like the project's been live for a year. And then mm-hmm. I would have only like a few kind of like weeks or months to finish and deliver the project. But, um, and then when you add kind of like the low latency side of things, which is usually a kind of like iterative um, cycle uh, where you have to keep measuring, retesting, and mm-hmm. redeploying new code, you can quickly kind of like run out of time. So th- there's uh, there's kind of like a fine balance between trying to make things as quick as possible mm-hmm. without sacrificing uh, potentially working on something else that might give some more benefit to the business. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's always going to be there, right? The code could always be better or you could always test it one more time, right? Yes, that's true. Um, so one thing I try and do is I try and always make a list of kind of like the biggest improvement for the least amount of effort. And I'll just mm-hmm. order them in that manner and just kind of like tick them off every single time. And uh, you, you quickly find that the, the items that will give you the small benefit sometimes take mm-hmm. the longest. So it's not always worth spending time on those. Yeah. And like in terms of like the gaming industry, I think I, I think that there's definitely to say that there's a problem with crunch, it definitely seems to be there. Like we can all agree that enough people complain about it that it's definitely a real thing. But I, I wish I feel like some of the conversation also just needs to be that can we just admit that it's probably always going to be there to some degree though? Because there's always going to be that one month before release no matter what. And there's always going to be that one more feature you either wanted to add or double check that it works. And at least in really not just games, but anything involving code, right? It's really, I think people think of like programmers and um, coders as kind of detached people. But if you think about it, coding is really an intimate thing. I mean, it's really no different than like, at least how I'm thinking of it right now, whittling wood. Every chip you whittled off of that wood was one little motion. Every line of code, someone someone typed that, at least part of it or something that made it. Like It's just so much of yourself, even though it doesn't look like a human, is going into making this. And... It, you know, that turns into a thing where the closer you get to release, you're like, you know, I put so many hours into this. I'm going to put another 30 in this week just to make extra 30 this week. 
because I don't want all that work I did to not be the best it can be. At least that's how that's how I often feel felt because I did some coding in college. Like there's just you put so much effort in, right? Like that it, it just has to be perfect. And and I felt the same thing actually working at General Motors for safety for cars. It's like if this thing has a safety problem, people could die. I I I did my due diligence, but I should still just probably check it one more time, you know, before launch. No, hundred um, percent. Like especially in finance, like. The level mm-hmm. of scrutiny is quite um, quite high when something does go wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, if 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 there's even like a remote kind of chance, like like if I'm if we feel that we're only like eighty percent sure or like ninety percent sure with this release, we would just pull it. It's it's mm-hmm. not worth. It's never worth the risk. Uh, we can always delay it by a little bit. Um, because money has to work, right? Yes. And this is very different than we've seen in the philosophy of some recent games that have released where they're like, well, if it works 80% of the t- if it crashes once every two hours, I guess that's okay. You know, um, if your money, and this is something, by the way, I try to explain to people who are like looking at alternative cryptocurrencies right now. And it's like, well, look at all these features they want to add. It's like, yes, yeah, some of those coins just had wallets that lost their people's money. I mean, that's unacceptable. The only thing money has to do is work. Everything else can be added later. If it ever loses your money or you can't use it, that is an inferior currency, right? No, 100%. That's completely unacceptable. Yeah, There's a lot of people working on cryptocurrencies, I think, that do not have any background in finance because they're applying gaming coding principles to people's money. And that's when I that's when I talk about why Bitcoin matters. It's like that one has twelve years of uptime. <laughs> that one's never had a you know a wallet disappear like IOTA or something. It's like I, I would never use it if I had to actually worry about just deleting what's in my wallet. That's insane. So that that's like one of the reasons why uh, you know when there's a new game uh, when they start mm-hmm. discussing a new game. And they say that they're going to support the next generation consoles, the last generation consoles, and all these different consoles like Nintendo Switch, the PC. I always get a bit worried because how can you code um, mm-hmm. something that is supposed to work on all these different machines really, really well? Um, you could do it if you have a lot of time and money, but most of the time, yeah. most of the time they are releasing a new game every year or every two years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a bit unfortunate that they do go down that route of kind of over-promising in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have, oh, like for example, with Cyberpunk. Um, yeah. I would have just preferred if they supported the new consoles only. Mm-hmm. I think the root problem with crunch in the gaming industry, for being honest, is what you said. You just need to be honest with your expectations, right? All of this crunch, if we're really being honest, most of it came from the top and they said it has to be done by the state. In the case of Cyberpunk, I personally highly suspect their company was out of money and they knew they had to release something with pre-orders and hiding the true state of the game in reviews or they would go bankrupt. 
Now, some games have done rounds of funding when this happens recently. I forgot which one it was. They're like, we're out of money. We need a round of funding. They get the money. And then they say, okay, it's coming out next year. What they decided to do is just get something out so they could get their money now so they could keep working on it. I think just people at the top of management need to better... I think it's less about, oh, crunch should be illegal and more about... You know, it wouldn't be as bad. There's always going to be some crunch leading up to a release. It wouldn't be as bad if you guys just set realistic expectations. Um, but I don't know. You could also argue, well, wh- who has self-accountability then? Shouldn't the programmers be the ones yelling at management that I can't get it done in time? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think you could argue both, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I've noticed, like, in my own kind of experience that um, that programmers are generally reluctant to speak up. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, sure. I can see, yeah, like a, a lot of more certain personality types that may be less likely to be a loud person compared to like someone in sales who's not afraid to yell. <laughs> like you said, you just have to be completely honest with expectations because it's better to deliver what you said that you're going to deliver than mm-hmm. promise a bit more and just under deliver, deliver every single time. It's like one example for me would be GTA. So they release like a game pretty much for every console generation and then they just kind mm-hmm. of stop there. Um, how would you say, like, how would you describe kind of like the stability of those games, like GTA games? So the last one released was GTA 5, of course. I, I never really got into GTA 4. Uh, or, or any of the ones... I've played San Andreas a bit. I think most people have. Um, uh, GTA V, when it first came out... Of course, it first only came out on the last-gen consoles. So I did play it on release there because I, I was so excited for that game. And I thought it worked fine, you know. And then a couple years later, it came to next-gen consoles. I thought it worked fine. Then it came to PC, and I believe it ran fine. Some people complain if it's optimized enough, but it ran. You know, th- that's my perception. Was that yours? Yeah, like from what I've kind of like seen, I've always liked their approach. Um, so they mm-hmm. release one game um, every couple of years. They make mm, that's so an interesting much money. point. They make so much money from it, and um, they don't kind of worry about having to release another one just like two years later and skimping on quality. For example, I've always mm-hmm. like liked kind of like their approach with the GTA games. Um, you know, I've never heard someone make that point you're kind of making here, I think, though, right? Where it's, you know, they don't release their games like Red Dead Redemption 2, Rockstar doesn't, on every console at the same time. Red Dead Redemption 2 came to PS4 and Xbox One first, and they just made it work well on those. And then they brought it to PC, and it worked. And again, I know some people complain it's not optimized enough, but I don't know, that, that game worked perfectly on release, you know, on PS4. And you can complain about if the graphics are worth the perform, you know, the hardware needed if you want, which I would argue with people because I don't think people realize how many things are on screen in that game at once. Um, But, you know, it did work and they probably made more money too, which is is kind of what I think about Cyberpunk as well. Again, just to say, like if they would have just put in the effort or said, hey, we're only making it on next gen, is that, I know you're sacrificing short-term profits, which again, I assume they released it in the state they did because they literally had to, um, to to not go out of business. Does it matter you're not on last gen? People are going to be buying, people were buying The Witcher 3 for a decade or, or will be 
don't you think you should just plan for the future like that so you don't need to do it over and over? Yeah, exactly. And you, there's always the option of um, doing what Crytek did with Crisis, mm-hmm. where they released it for one platform first. And even all mm-hmm. these years later, 13, I think it's like 13 years later, they decided to release a N- Nintendo Switch version and oh. a PC remastered <laughs> yeah. version. So there's always um, kind of like money to be made afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I don't know. I, I, would, I have the mentality that I would just prefer them to get it to work on one platform first fully and then move on. Yeah, it seems like we keep coming back to the idea that you just need to set, keep expectations in check and plan accordingly. And and there's just a lot of enthusiasm, I would imagine, in game programming where they want to do everything at once and then, then, they, then they just hope to get it done in time. Whereas, you know, that type of mentality just doesn't work in the financial space, right? You only do one thing at a time because it has to work, right? Yes. And um, like the longer that one thing takes, um, the more we kind of lose out on market share, the more we lose out on potential revenue. So mm-hmm. it's always kind of like very important that we finish one piece of work first and then move on to the next. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great Windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need, and games as well. Add them to your cart, and you can even apply one of them city slicker promotional codes like Dashrink for 3% off software and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website, and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal, credit card, or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. Well, so Type 2501 writes in and says, Hi, Tom and guest for this week. What do you think other developers like gaming Uh, video editing software developers could benefit the most by learning from the work you are doing. And thanks, Tom, again for the hard work. Oh, well, thanks for the kind words, but I think that's what we're getting on. So directly, what would you say then to games developers that they could learn from, you know, the type of programming you do? Um, So I think they're already starting to do this, um, especially with games. Um, Because I remember when, um, this was like quite a few years ago, when most of the reviews uh, focused on average FPS benchmarks. And mm-hmm. it was only around, I think, when SLI and Xfire, uh, sorry, Crossfire came out when there was this issue around um, micro stuttering. Especially around the Kepler, you know, GTX 600, HD 7000 series, because I think at first in the 4000 and HD 4000 and 5000 series in Fermi, they were just blown away by the frame rates. 
and they weren't even looking at the fact that the 200 frames per second isn't much better than 60. Yes. Uh, so I think what it was is um, people just didn't know um, that even though it was 200 frames per second, there was some sort of latency issue going on in there. And mm-hmm. it was only after this when I started noticing that reviews started to kind of like include in um, individual frame latencies and FPS at like the 99th percentile and the 99.9 percentile. And um, you're also starting to see this with like monitors where for the longest amount of time we had like 60 hertz panels and now they're mm-hmm. racing towards 360 and above. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're already kind of like getting there um, mm-hmm. in the games industry. Um, the only thing I would kind of want from them a bit, I guess, as a fan, not as a software developer, but as a fan of games, um, is like a bigger focus on stability and quality control. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I just want it to work. I don't have a lot of spare time anymore as an adult, you know? <laughs> like, just let me know when it's done. I don't have a shortage of other games to play in the meantime. Yeah, it's just that these trailers, like when you see these trailers, you, you really get excited and you think about pre-ordering a game. And then when you go to play... Yeah, I don't anymore. If it's not in-game, I don't care. Like, I just literally don't care anymore. Like, I'm numb to the whole trailer thing with with a, maybe a handful of exceptions. And that's only from developers that I know haven't screwed up yet. Yeah, well, like, which ones would you recommend in that sense? Oh, which developers? Yeah. I mean, well, we've been talking about one. Um, I think Rockstar <clears throat> and Naughty Dog uh, have, have a legendary track record, you know? And I believe there's another one, Insomniac, I would put up there as well. They, I mean, they created, I, you know, <laughs> the, the uh, several most popular series that just, they don't, they, I think they've had like one bad game. There's another one too. Um, that there's another couple too that I'm forgetting. Probably Valve as well. They don't really make games anymore, but I, I would put Valve certainly on that list of when they make something, it's almost always great, right? Yeah, I was just about I, to say I that. believe there's another one I'm forgetting too. I don't remember which one, but there there is another one that I'm forgetting. No, I fully agree with that. Um, they release games literally once. Once a blue moon, but when they do, mm-hmm. you know it's going to be great. I like that about. You know, I'd actually include from software. Like, not all of their games have been the most optimized, especially on console. Like the thirty hertz games, like Blood uh, Bloodborne, unfortunately, still just doesn't have a good patch for it. But when from software makes a game, it's good. I, I don't think they've made a bad game really since Demon Souls. I like darks. All the Dark Souls have been home runs, pretty much. I've I've never played those. It, Even if you don't like those games, right? But I think people who do would say that. I'm guessing that's like a console exclusive, right? Not Dark Souls. All three Dark Souls are on PC. Oh, I mean, okay. I own them. I own. I don't own the first one on PC, I suppose, but I own the second and the third one on it. Yeah, and Sekiro. Well, I might have to check it out. <laughs> uh, so, so one game I started playing recently is Warzone. And mm-hmm. I noticed that they have like in-game latency metrics and stuff. And it was quite interesting yeah. to see that. Um, so on top of like the average frames per seconds, they now have CPU time, which kind of like mm-hmm. measures how long it takes for the CPU to uh, render one frame. 
and mm-hmm. GPU time as well. And I just thought it was quite interesting to see that in a game. It's not something I've seen. It's on PC though, right? On PC, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Because uh, I, I don't believe the console version has that. Um, now, you know, you, you'd be surprised. You actually, a lot of games have that now where you can just show all of it on screen. Oh, must have been, probably didn't notice that. It's kind of becoming the new thing to just allow you to do that as well. Um, But let me continue this conversation. Robert Algia writes in and says, when the software that you run on all the servers on gets updates and and requires a restart, how does that affect the system supported? Is it more of a small delay in processing as you wait for all the servers to come back online? Or is it more of a rolling update where you constantly have servers talking to each other and the updates going on sequentially? Yep. Uh, so it really kind of like depends on the change that's involved. Um, so for example, if it's like a small config-driven change that will simply um, introduce new financial instruments or thresholds or values, then we would normally do this dynamically uh, during the week mm-hmm. um, using like a UI or maybe like a DB update. And um, because we mimic the exchanges in terms of um, uptime, uh, if there's any larger changes, like software patches and things like that, then we would normally be doing this on a Friday evening or Saturday. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of goes into more of the hardware side questions for you. So Steak and Chicken Man writes in and asks, for high-frequency shading, is core count clock speed more important than bandwidth? In other words, in environments like cloud, DDR5 and PCIe5 and CXL are poised to be game changers. How much do you see these technologies affecting what you do? Like, And I think we talked offline that there's they're Intel servers for now. Do, that you guys aren't using any AMD servers, right? Yeah, so um, some, some of the more recent ones that we have are Skylake-based. Mm-hmm. And some of the older ones are actually quite old, um, Sander Bridge mm-hmm. and DDR3. Um, but yeah, I've been kind of like on the lookout for some AMD servers going forward, but we just haven't had the mm-hmm. chance to kind of like look into those yet. But I hope we do soon. Well, and you've said that you know, usually the servers you guys get are like one or two years outdated when they arrive new, right? Like that's how long it takes for the approval process in this type of industry. Exactly, yeah. So um, like by, by the time you kind of order it, um, it's probably already outdated by a year. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you receive it, it's completely, <laughs> so it's been two years at that point, so. <laughs> Well, yeah, even my last guest, who is an IT director, he said that, you know, even when it came to AMD and as a fairly recent switch that they ended up going with Naples, you know, so Zen 1 instead of Zen 2 or waiting for Zen 3, simply because like that, that's just, you know, even though they switched in the past year, that's what was available, right? Yeah. Um, just to kind of like answer um, that question. The future, yeah. Yeah, that question. Um, I think it kind of goes hand in hand, both um, the clock speed, core count, and the bandwidth. Because mm-hmm. you can't have a lot of cores and clock speed uh, without the bandwidth to feed those cores, right? And um, having it the other way around wouldn't be helpful either. But in low latency, we generally tune specifically for each individual execution. So whether mm-hmm. it's one execution, or whether it's 100 or 10,000, 
we want it to perform at very low latency levels, but consistently. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you would uh, sacrifice all out kind of like throughput just to achieve low latency on an individual execution level. So that's kind of the question I'm asking too, is it's like, I know there are these different, well, both from Intel and AMD uh, server chips where some of them are like, you know, 64 cores or as many cores as possible clocked somewhat lower. And then they run it like 150 watts to be efficient with 64 cores. Then there's some versions of Epic chips that are like 400 watts, but they can boost to five gigahertz. So you guys do, is it all about looking for the highest clocked Xeon you can get? Is that as important as it having a bunch of cores or is it a balance? Because I think most people don't care if it's clocked high. Some, like the server engineer I've had on the show before, couldn't care less if it was clocked above 1.4 gigahertz. We would kind of like focus on running multiple components that are lightly threaded. Okay, um, so, so, so just you'd want more of the highly clocked ones so that an actual execution is as fast as possible, but then you'll just have a ton of chips. Yes, exactly. Because whenever you introduce multiple threads, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to achieve low latency. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the inherent nature of like context switching and having to deal with multiple threads, reading and writing to a cache, uh, you start to run into loads of kind of like problems. So one way we get around it is by following the kind of like single writer principle where one mm-hmm. thread will write to it and uh, one thread might read to it, but you do it in a way where there's uh, very little contention or you can even avoid it by using like kind of a sophisticated uh, lock-free uh, frameworks. Okay. And that is different than... A lot of the people I talk to who work with servers, you know, again, usually they just want as much throughput as possible, whereas this is more of a balance. I mean, how much of like these new technologies, PCIe 5, DDR5, are interesting to you for, I mean, just are they interesting to you because you believe they'll lower latency even further or? So I think DDR5 is really interesting because mm-hmm. um, I feel like we've, uh, quadrupled core counts, but we haven't really either increased the memory channels um, or even the memory clock speed hasn't increased that much since mm-hmm. then. Um, because it's all kind of like happened with DDR4. We've gone, like even on the desktop side of things, we've gone from four cores to 16 cores now, and but we still have the same dual channel memory. Same with like APUs, right? I've seen a lot of people say, where's the 12 compute unit Renoir? And it's like, I think AMD thinks most OEM laptops are either going to put in a dedicated card or they're not going to have RAM that can take advantage of 12 compute units. You know, like we're still using DDR4. I guess now there's, you know, LP DDR4X and stuff, but. Yeah, so uh, with DDR5, um, I think it's a bit unique in the sense that um, that traditionally, um, I know, I remember when, DDR1 was still a thing and DDR2 just Mm -hmm. came out. A lot of people were still recommending that you should run a really fast DDR1 kit if you could run Mm -hmm. it at like really, really low timings. I think it was like 12225, I think it was. Um, I don't remember the exact uh, late um, timings, but I do remember them being... Again, you see this a lot with new DDR kits that the... Yeah, the the bandwidth overall looks a lot higher, but the timings are significantly worse. 
Yeah, and with also, I think from what I've, like, I've done a little bit of reading on DDR5, and each kind of like stick acts as two mm-hmm. channels. Yeah. So even if like DDR4 and DDR5 is running at the same speed, you get a slight bandwidth improvement, mm-hmm. um, which is quite interesting. So uh, from that perspective, I think DDR5 is something to look forward to. But because we've run almost all the, actually all the kind of like applications in memory, um, I'm not really sure where PCI Express 5 would come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we avoid kind of like writing to disks um, unless it's like a database. So PCI Express 5, so it's not very... Interesting. Well, it's, so I've got two reader mails here that tie into this. So let's just make sure they're answered. I mean, Beachhorn writes, and this is the first round of DDR5 sticks in the news show a large nanosecond latency due to the cast latency despite the increase in frequency. Do you feel this is a temporary measure or something more permanent due to the higher frequency and mandatory ECC? Do you feel this will post additional design issues in your industry? To which I would just say it was temporary with DDR4 when it first came out as well. Like, to get it qualified to meet the voltage, you know, and energy usage requirements, while being at a higher speed, they typically had pretty horrible latency with launch DDR4. <laughs> I mean, so I assume that's somewhat temporary with DDR5. But do you do you not feel it is? And do you think even with this increased latency it, in that regard, that it would be worth it because it is just more bandwidth overall with how it works? Yeah, I think with DDR5, it might be uh, probably the first time where it's worth it straight away, I think. Aside, oh, okay. Aside from maybe the cost, because um, obviously it will be really expensive <laughs> for the first two years, yes. like, like it always is. But um, from just the little bit of understanding that I have on it and the little bit of reading that I did on it, I think it will be quite beneficial to have it straight away. That's interesting. I didn't expect you to say that, actually. Or or I wasn't sure if you would say it matters either way at the very least. Uh, but if for gaming, though, I have to say that I, I kind of just... I would almost think it will not help as much for the... Unless, again, right? Unless we're talking about like a 32-core, whatever it is, Zen 4 chip, you know, which needs the bandwidth, needs DDR5. I suspect that there will be some games where like with Alder Lake, where you can choose between a DDR5 and a DDR4 motherboard, that some games will just prefer the lower latency and not need the extra bandwidth. Because there are some games that just like really tight timing. But it sounds like for your applications, the extra bandwidth just will be used then. Yes. And um, and also, I think generally, on the desktop side of things anyway, I tend to skip um, the first generation of Mm-hmm. Like DDR5 or DDR3, whatever it is, because um, there's always like kind of Me like too. some sort of memory controller bug or some sort of chipset bug. Um, or it costs twice as much as the alternative. Exactly. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's a huge one for me. <laughs> so, um, so I'll probably, um, we'll do for an upgrade at this point, but I'll probably just wait uh, until the second gen. Mm-hmm. And then Benjamin Cannon writes in and says, a real question. Well, I'm glad we don't want fake questions, Benjamin. And he says, what are your thoughts on PCIe 6 using quaternary four bits possible over the traditional binary? And thanks for coming on the show and helping us learn more about technology industries. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. But um, I just, to be honest, I wonder what the impact would be because um, I think in this spec, they talk about it being backwards compatible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it supports both um, two oh, bits and four yeah. bits. So I wonder what the what that means for the products, like for SSDs and things like that. I haven't looked into PCIe 6.0 at all right now. I'm just covering <laughs> 5.0 a little bit because Alder Lake will and Zen 4 will support it. I, PCIe 6 is not something I, I'm personally looking at at all right now. No, same here. Um, I can see it being used in a like, really high IOPS um, scenario mm-hmm. where you know you deal with like, sure. for like scientific purposes. Or even like in finance, where you do a lot of um, simulations on mm-hmm. huge data sets, I can see where it would benefit there. But from a low latency perspective, um, there's probably not much difference, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's even with PCIe 4.0 when it first came out, really was only beneficial in double digit regards for like large data sets and simulations. So, same thing. Uh, Illyrium writes in and asks, a few years ago, people were paying five digits USD for the fastest bin Xeon to get the best edge in getting your trades transactioned ahead or on par with other traders and brokers. With the ongoing stall at 14 nanometer for Intel, do you know what these players have been upgrading to? Did anyone switch to AMD yet? Oh, so I guess we've already touched on that. Do you know if anyone is switching to AMD in your industry? Uh, Not that I've heard of. Uh, not that I heard mm-hmm. of so far. Um, so we bought um, some servers recently, but that was just before Zen Zen One came out. So, mm-hmm. so this was, uh, I think, it might have been around 2016, 17, I think. Okay. So, um, like for us, I guess the next opportunity would be when we expand to another kind of like emerging market, a new region, mm-hmm. and then we could look at brand new servers. Because the general approach approach has always been to um, just get more of things you already have when you run out of capacity, mm-hmm. rather than yep. replacing what you already have. As we've covered with the other server engineer too, like yeah. when the uh, security vulnerabilities pop up, they just bought more Intel because it was easier than switching to AMD. Yeah. Um, so, like one phrase that I kind of like hear always getting thrown about is um, that the free lunch is over. And this was well before the hmm. 14 nanometer issues. Um, so when kind of like clock speeds stopped increasing that much and we started going mm-hmm. towards uh, multiple cores, um, at that point, people started re- rewriting their software mm-hmm. um, to get most of kind of like the benefits. Of having a bunch of threads, yeah. Exactly. And um, I think I mentioned earlier that we re- rewrote like an entire component and mm-hmm. ended up being 10 times faster on the same hardware, same infrastructure. And so when you say the free lunch is over, you mean that for Intel or just in general? Um, just in general. Like, mm-hmm. um, there used to be a time when you didn't have to make a change to your software and you would get mm-hmm. free performance improvements with just clock speeds. Oh, you see, you're from the perspective of programming. The free lunch is over. We now need to do a good job to utilize newer hardware. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that kind of gets me to the final thing about this subject, though. P. Joe writes in and says, is there any reasons not to go with AMD if you are a new trading company setting up a brand new server, right? So is there any reason you won't switch next time you guys need to implement one? Um. No, I mean, that's, I think that's a really good question because um, 
Let's then... Because we get why you haven't up until now, right? It's it's kind of delayed, and Intel was still as good, even right around when Zen first came out for most uses, especially low latency, I assume. Like, But at this point, with Zen 3, with Zen 4, is there a reason you wouldn't consider them for the next upgrade? Um, not really. So like from, from the top of my head, um, the only thing I would look into investigating... Um, if I was to use it for for like a low latency um, application, is how the CCX and the CCDs um, affect the latency? Because mm-hmm. I know um, I've found out that um, like whenever there's some sort of communication between the CCXs, like especially on a Zen two, um, mm-hmm. where there's four on each, um, there are much higher levels of latencies involved. So with Zen three, that improves a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I would love to have get my hands on one of those to just test it out, to try and um, see what the impact is. But so you would say before, and not even just a, a, an abstract, you're sure before Zen 2 still had real concerns, not just from you, but other people, and being implemented for this type of a use case because Zen 2 did have more latency. Uh, no, no, this is just... Like my own kind of like take on. Oh, okay. Um, the reason why we haven't had like any AMD systems in the past is because it's just really difficult to even get mm-hmm. AMD workstations. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting AMD servers would have been just even more. It's, it's just it's just a bit of a hassle to get approvals for these type of things for like new mm-hmm. systems. Uh, just a lot of questions raised as to why we're going for a completely different platform. Mm-hmm. But um, if this is like a brand new uh, use case, then yes, uh, I don't see why you wouldn't consider it. So not replacing an existing location servers, but if you were adding a new location, they would consider AMD moving forward, do you think? Yes. 100%. Okay. All right, so here's an interesting question, I think. Um, Cass writes in and asks, when does it make sense for a company to switch from a general purpose CPU to a custom built ASIC. Like in, in your industry, is anyone looking at like even custom x86 or I mean like because and, and by for those wondering what I mean by custom x86, I understand there's only so many licenses out there, but I know some supercomputers are supposedly gonna get a custom version of Milan from AMD. And I know there's custom ARM CPUs, although now they're being bought by NVIDIA, possibly. <laughs> but you know, like, is there any consideration to like like design one CPU for low latency? Because you'd almost think this would be a good place to do that. Or is that not something really being looked at anytime soon? Um, so I've kind of like heard about um, people using this in finance. But in a strictly trading platform, I think um, there are some drawbacks that need to be considered. Um, like one of them would be get the expertise that's required for that type of um, specialized hardware. And then there's Mm -hmm. always like a cost and dependency on the vendor that provides it. So there's a dependency on the hardware and on the API that we would have to code on. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when you're dealing with, for example, in our use case where we're dealing with multiple exchanges and the data and the protocols are so different between them, you would want something a bit more general purpose. And it would just make things a bit more difficult to do this on a hardware level. Mm-hmm. 
But you don't think the gains are there that would be worth it for this industry for your company? Um, I think it, would, or at least that's what they've decided. <laughs> whether you know, I, I think it would make a bit more sense. Um, I can see the use case for sure if it was like completely internal data. So if you were mm-hmm. in full control of the data, then uh, and you'd you'd have like like models doing loads of simulations on huge data sets, then I can see where definitely this would come in. And mm-hmm. or even like a hybrid solution where you have x86 and like a custom CPU in the pipeline. So that way you okay. kind of get the best of both. So some of the generic stuff is done on the CPU and then you would have a custom CPU look at doing fixed functions. Okay. Well, I've got another um, kind of random question here, too, from a, a listener. Uh, Silvanos writes in and says, and he, and he has a link to Samsung's new uh, type of HBM memory coming out. Is the new HBM PIM technology by Samsung a game changer that will improve both performance and efficiency like Samsung is advertising? Ooh, I think that's really hard to say without seeing some real-life benchmarks. But mm-hmm. um, the one thing that did kind of like stick out to me was that there was no requirement for hardware or software changes necessary. Oh, and that's essential. I can't imagine anyone would use this if you had to program for their AI HBM, right? Exactly. And I thought that bit alone uh, makes it worth looking at. The fact that you, if you can get a lot of performance improvement just from doing nothing, just plugging it in, mm-hmm. um, it's definitely worthwhile. But they kind of just mention efficiency and high bandwidth and no mention of low latency. So oh, that could be the trade-off when it's handling this on its own with the chip inside of it. Yeah, um, I'm assuming the low latency would aspect would get improved as well, but it's hard to say. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be nice to kind of like see some real applications using it. So yeah, you're saying that, well, we need <laughs> benchmarks to prove this works as well as they say, because it's a pretty outside-the-box idea. But the fact that they say you don't need to program anything, that it just works, uh, means that if it works well, this, yeah, it could be a game-changer if it really gives the performance benefits they're saying. Yeah, so um, I would actually go one step further and say that mm-hmm. even after like kind of like looking at these benchmarks, it's important that... Um, you do benchmarks on your own applications as well. Because sometimes you see benchmarks um, that are favorable and they look really good. But then when you run your own application stack on it, then you might see... Oh, so you're saying even though there's no programming required that they, and this happens all the time, of course, may have cherry-picked the ones that work this well. This is a best-case scenario is what you're saying, most likely, and you don't know what could be going on with something else. Yeah, possibly. All right, so I've got a more gaming-centric question here from Stefan Hart. I don't know if I'm going to read all of it, but he says he's mad with his current hardware, a 5900X, a 3080, and two terabytes of Gen 4 NVMe and RAID 0. I don't know why you'd be mad. That's pretty powerful. But he, he says the PS5 SSD controller makes it obsolete, or at least it does things PCMR just can't do right now because it has... One stupid, uses a different word to describe it, um, additional custom chip 
And my question is, can these functionalities be replicated in software? I want to see crazy effects like Ratchet and Clank on PC. Will this be soon, or will devs continue to chase the lowest common denominator and hold us back when they're not exclusive titles? Um, I mean, first of all, I would say your PC is going to have no problems running 99% of games, I'm sure, for the foreseeable future that I really... Really wouldn't worry about that. I mean, what's your gut reaction answer to him? Yeah, I mean, I think like even on the PS5, I think Mm -hmm. for games to fully utilize um, any sort of like specialized hardware, it will usually take a few years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen it before, I think, with uh, previous generation consoles, for example, with the PS3, which had like a special CPU. Cell, mm-hmm. cell CPU, they called it. That's a little different, though, because that one was also really hard to program for to get it. So, to get the most out of the PS5's hardware, you, of course, need to program specifically for it, without a doubt. Yeah. But if you were to program, based on what I'm told from developers, if you program for it like it's just a PC, it works as well as an equivalent PC for the most part. Whereas the cell processor, if you programmed it like a normal PC, it worked significantly worse than far cheaper CPUs. That was the problem with the cell. Yeah, so uh, I think with, like in regards to the SSD, you would probably need to build that functionality into the game engine itself to really use yeah. it. Just a game designed around the console uh, will give you, you know, really, lo- really quick um, kind of like loadups and stuff like that. But to really use the kind of like loading in assets in real time. Yeah, the streaming assets to, re- to, I guess you would say, reduce performance hits from rendering too many things on screen is what they've advertised it should be able to do. Yes, I, f- I think we're probably still like a few years away from that, like two years maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point... Besides maybe Ratchet and Clank, and we'll see how well that works. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there will always be... Is that like a console exclusive or...? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah and it, at least in the demos, and I haven't paid much attention to it for... I never. I don't think I've ever even played a Ratchet and Clank game, but from the demos I saw, it can pretty much pull in like portals to literally jump to other levels instantly. So that's like the streaming in of new levels instantly is what they're advertising it's doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always felt that with special hardware, um, it will require extra time to use it. So, mm-hmm. um, like I know loads of people have bought the PlayStation 5 because of the SSD, but um, I'm quite interested to find out when we will actually see those type of games. Well, that one comes out in, I believe, June. In June. So, that will be the first one. Yeah. Okay. Like on PC side of things, um, like one thing I've noticed is as we're moving away from SLC and MLC SSDs now, and mm-hmm. TLC has become kind of like the norm, like triple sale, yeah. triple layer cells. Isn't it like, tri- is it triple or trinary or, yeah, something, I mean. Yeah, something like that. And three is the, with the T, stands yeah. for versus two per, yeah. Um, I was really surprised when I found out that Intel um, won't be making any more Optane drives. <laughs> 
just around that well, time. Well, if you listen to the Dave Eggleston episode from like a month ago, you'll hear why. I mean, they were just not being used properly. They were basically putting something that almost needs the upcoming CXL to be used properly and saying it drives. It's just completely wasting its potential outside of a few really niche use cases. Yeah, um, like I've just kind of like seen some benchmarks where with Threadripper especially, Mm-hmm. Um, like a regular SSD would just kind of really struggle to keep up. Mm-hmm. And in which case, like they recommend to use Intel Optane. So when I started looking at it recently, I noticed that they won't be making it anymore, which is quite disappointing. But well, I well, I, I think Intel again, as I covered in that Dave Eggleston, or was covered by him, really, in that Dave Eggleston episode, he talks about how the only reason they were putting Optane on these, let's just be honest, slower interfaces is because they needed to sell something. And (laughs) that no one was, no gamers were going to buy dim sticks of Optane because it wouldn't run well. So they just put them in anything they could, sold them probably for about half as much as it cost them to make them just to get volume going. Um, And I do find that interesting that they said to use Optane with Threadripper. That must have been whatever it was, a niche application then. Yeah, it was was just kind of like loads of different threads accessing the Mm -hmm. SSD at the same time. And um, I think it was like after you go past 32 cores, you definitely mm-hmm. need something a bit more than a regular consumer level SSD. Well, so to bring it back to his question, though, I, I, I think the answer is there, and I'm just going to say it, I, I really do think there will just be some games that aren't easily run on another device that maybe the PS5 can run, but that's going to be like a handful of titles. So if we were to divide the types of games that get, shall we say, benefits from this magical SSD, the first tier is games that, if you really program to the metal, I think can only be run on that console for a few years. But then there's a second tier that can get big benefits and... Well, it might require less money to make a piece of silicon that has these dedicated components for streaming assets. It can certainly be done elsewhere, right? And I think the Unreal Engine 5 demo demonstrated, and they talked about how it could be run on a PC with a PCIe Gen 4 device. It might require more expensive hardware than otherwise on a console built around doing this only for gaming and efficiently, but it's still doable. So like when I look at this, person's question and he's worried about you know his 5900x in nvme drives and raid being able to run these games i would say even this tier two is going to run fine because even if it theoretically can't stream in assets as efficiently you've also just got more bandwidth and more ram like total in your pc i'm assuming you have Double the RAM the console has, at least, meaning that, well, it may not be as efficient. It can easily just brute force the same game, right? <laughs> like, it'll, it, it's just a stronger device, so it may not be as efficient at streaming assets, but it can also render more assets at once. Yeah, I think in a, just in a nutshell, I don't think he has to worry about anything for the, for the time being. Just- and, and, and like, yeah, so Ratchet and Clank won't be on PC. Like, yep. <laughs> but I wouldn't worry too much about a lot of the other games 
yet, you know? And, and I think that a lot of people see that and they go, that's crazy. But it, this was true before, guys. This was true before. You had a generation where with the 360, it went to a six-thread CPU. Most gaming PCs in 2006 were dual cores, you know? And some of the game ports back then from console to PC ran badly because of bad porting. Some of them needed more than two cores, <laughs> you know, and but most of the dual cores were stronger than each individual core in the consoles. So that's how you made up for it through brute force. And over time, it just wasn't a factor. It, it's just the same story again, except now with storage. You know, you're just going to have to have a stronger CPU and graphics card with more RAM to render more things at once because it's not as efficiently streaming in things. Theoretically, to be fair, Sony hasn't proven anything yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, even so, that's why I have to say it's still theoretical, though. Exactly. Um, like, I mean, even if it was an issue um, for like PC, I think it, like within two years it, it would have probably caught up with PlayStation Five. Mm-hmm. On, Which, on every level, this is built. This is built to be like a right, and that's why I tell people don't worry about buying a Threadripper thirty-two core to make up for the fact that. The th- the Xbox Series X and PS5 have these co-processors that make it the equivalent of more Zen 2 cores. It's like, yeah, but the games on PC don't need that many cores yet. When they do, there will be cheaper multi-cores and, yeah, that you can buy. And by then, we'll probably have direct storage um, in like two years, maybe. And at that point, you can just use a graphics card to offload some of that um, I.O. bottleneck. You know, I've actually talked to a couple developers about the direct storage thing and I expected some of them to say it can't possibly work as well as what some of the consoles can do but what they basically said is at certain tasks it will work just as well so direct storage should allow instant load times theoretically or pretty close to what the consoles are supposed again the consoles aren't really instant yet so it's theoretical but um, if the consoles do get to these like you know, at least the PS5, if it gets to, let's say, I don't know, four second, two second load times, direct storage, assuming your device is fast enough and you have enough cores, should be able to do the same. However, it doesn't have the IO controllers, so it will just load up those cores, right? And I even see that now loading some pretty big games like Division 2, where my, where I have a Gen 4 SSD, and it will get 100% CPU usage on my 3950X while loading. So already you can see it's just kind of brute forcing the problem. And then it, the one thing they said they're not sure about is asset streaming, though, because there are direct pipelines in the, in the Xbox and the PS5 for sending the assets directly without having to like go through as many controllers that you have on a desktop. So I think we can get the instant loading just through brute force with direct storage, but I am skeptical that there's some asset streaming things that won't be done as easily unless you just have a ton of cores. But again, that's what, two years from now? So I wouldn't worry about that too much yet. And again, I wouldn't freak out about all these games you can't play. There's going to be some, I think, that straight up can't run on PC for years, but I don't think it's going to be all of, (laughs) I don't think it's going to be half of them or something. Yeah, I, th- I think it might just be like one or two, maybe. Con- in the next two years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mia writes in and says, what do you do on the operating system level? Do you run Linux with the low latency or real-time kernels or real-time OS? Are there any challenges programming for soft real-time environments besides just optimizing for latency? Um, so at the moment, we have a tuned um, standard Red Hat OS. And um, basically, we just tune for power management to get the maximum performance. So we disable all power states um, just making sure that the CPU doesn't power down. Mm-hmm. And um, like one of the main things that we do is core isolation and thread pinning. And this is mainly just to avoid the application threads to prevent um, doing like context switching, which is quite expensive. And then we also kind of like do some form of analysis using the perf utility. And then we look at things like cache misses. Going further than that, um, I think we would first look at upgrading our hardware because of like the amount of applications that we run on that server. Mm-hmm. Um, doing too many kind of like modifications to the OS might have a detrimental effect. So by going real time and having too many applications running on a server, you're bound to have one thread that might not give get all the processing kind of like resources that it needs. Okay. Uh, and then I have one more reader mail here. Sigurd Mustin Jaeger Nielsen. It's four, it's four people almost asking a question based on how long that name is. Asks, what do you do regarding ISPs? How do you choose them? And in what way can they be a bottleneck to you? Yeah. Um, so the main kind of like consideration is we always deal with co-location and dedicated cross-connects. So in that sense, uh, we're in the same warehouse and um, we're in the same, we have like a one-to-one connection to the exchange mm-hmm. server. And by having a dedicated line, don't really um, usually worry about bottlenecks in that sense. Okay. Well, that that's all of the reader mails. We actually got through all of them. And if they weren't asked, I'm pretty sure we covered them anyways in the subjects we went through. So is there anything else you want to talk about while you're here? Um, I think we covered it with the SSDs. So that was like one of my mm-hmm. questions and something that I want to talk to you about. But uh, other than that, um, what do you think about potentially, even with... DDR5 getting introduced, uh, what do you think about just increasing the amount of memory channels in general, like in desktop and HEDT, like from two to three on desktop, and then maybe from four to six on the high performance? So I'm not going to speak for server. You know, you see all types of interesting things being proposed. Like I think Sapphire Rapids is just going to have, from Intel, is going to have a lot of channels, you know, and, and I think there's the, the will for that in server. You know, it's we'll pay for it, make it as big as possible. We just want the most performance for the best efficiency in the smallest space. They'll go for it. When it comes to desktop, though, I do see a lot of people in the comments section go, oh, why haven't they made it quad channel yet? Why haven't they done this yet? Why haven't they done that yet? And it's like, well, it there's a lot more cost constraints on desktop. And at least for now, AMD's managed to scale up to 16 cores with just two memory channels, you know? And it doesn't really seem bottlenecked. It seems fine with just two channels, despite being... And so what I would say is, could they go to quad-channel memory for AM5, right? 
for example, for Zen 4. Maybe. But they're also going to have DDR5 for Zen 4. And if they're only going to like 24 cores, which is what I believe I've been communicating roughly for the past year, since my first Zen 4 leak in that AM domination video, I think DDR5 might cover it. As you've already discussed, it effectively has more memory channels and less sticks. So I don't know. I I think it's all balancing cost. When it it comes to server, do what you got to do. But when it comes to desktop, I think there's an honest question to be asked of, do you need more than 16 cores now? Like, do, like, And I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but if I were AMD, I would, with, with, if I were designing Zen 4, I would be hammering the IPC in low latency much harder than adding more cores. I would add more cores because people expect it. People want more cores when there's a big new generation. That's what they expect out of a new Zen architecture, I think. Besides, and again, besides Zen 3, but I mean, I would argue Zen 3 was a bigger deal for gaming and even a lot of non-gaming things than Zen 2 because most people don't need more than eight cores. So I I guess that's kind of my answer of instead of adding more memory channels to AM5, I would just, you know, go to maybe 20, 24 cores, increase IPC as much as possible and make it more efficient and then focus on telling people, buy Threadripper if you want the more memory channels. So I, yeah, I guess that's what I would say is I'm not sure they need more than two memory channels for AM5. And I certainly don't think they should go above four. Um, and, and even if they do that, they should make sure they can keep the motherboard cost below $200. And then for Threadripper, I say, yeah, bring eight memory channels to Zen 4 Threadripper. Go for it, you know. And then just tell people if they want more than 24 cores and a bunch of memory channels, well, then you clearly have a lot of money and you're doing something for a business. Pay up, man. Come on. <laughs> this is a charity. Yeah. That's my answer. No, no, no. That's fair enough. It's just that um, I think Intel, they introduced triple channels um, a few years ago. And with. Well, they did for um, what was it? Got them. Uh, Nahalem. You know, they had. Yeah. But that was six channel. I no wait, did it? No, it was three channel. It was three channel. The i seven nine twenty. Sorry guys, I'm really tired now. Uh, <laughs> this is being recorded right after the uh, giant sixty eight hundred XT review I put out. Um, so I'm running on fumes a bit. Yeah, I mean they did triple channel then. They're quad channel right now, and then Threadripper is four channels right now. Besides the pro version that came out, that is uh, eight channel now too. Eight channel, yeah. I've seen some benchmarks on it, and I think there's only one benchmark that used more than four channels. You see, my see, that's my point. Then you know, I think people keep asking, well, why don't we add more memory channels? Well, they don't need it yet, and then, but if it's for APUs, what do you? Well, I mean, you know, they've only got eight compute units in the APUs. I think they're going to bring out much more powerful ones. But then DDR5 will be out. And DDR5's bandwidth, you know, gets up to around GDDR5. And so that's enough to support, you know, an APU that, I don't know, you know, gets up to, (laughs) depending on how they do it, it could probably get about as strong as a 580 with DDR5. So do they they need four memory channels? Maybe. I I, I don't know. I just... Like when I hear with my Alder Lake leak, when I hear Intel wants to beat the 5900X at multi threading and crushed at gaming, and they have no intention of trying to beat the 5950X at multi threading because they're like, just buy an HEDT system at that point. I think they have a point. <laughs> yeah. But the configurations on the Alder Lake is quite interesting. 
Um, I think they could have, would have been nice to see more bigger cores and less amount of smaller cores. Like, for example, like a 12 plus 4, maybe. Yeah. They could. Well, uh, but keep in mind, right, as I covered in that, my latest Alder Lake leak, the IPC one and confirming desktop performance, which is what I was talking about just there, uh, beating the 5900X. I think that it's about optimizing performance per watt per millimeter squared. And if a Gracemont Atom core is a third the performance of a dual threaded Golden Cove core, and again, remember it's clocked lower, that's why I say that to people, then, you know, it also you can fit four Gracemont cores in the space of one Golden Cove. So it's technically like 20, again, these are estimates, right? like 20% more efficient at performance per millimeter squared. So do you really need more than eight big cores? At a certain point, shouldn't you just add more little ones for the multi-threaded tasks if it takes up less space? Yeah, I mean, especially because they're targeting that CPU for gamers, I think that approach is pretty good. Having eight but they're going to have to prove it works well. Yes. And in fact, I could see Sapphire Rapids possibly working really well for financial trading servers uh, although I believe that one's all big cores, you know, so, but you could almost see them design a server chip where they have like one or like, I don't know, right? Eight, 5.1 gigahertz big cores. And they just throw 128 atom cores behind it for throughput. Yeah. I mean, as long as like the OS can deal with scheduling. Which um, they're going to have to prove it can. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. As long as, as long as the OS can do it quite um, in a smart manner. I think it'll be good. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's my answer. And I've even heard that some of the like mobile chips that are cut down, that they're not even necessarily going to cut it down from six cores, six plus eight, I should say, to six plus four. They actually plan, from what I've heard, to cut it down to two plus eight. So just two big cores and eight little cores. Then that might be what like mobile I5s or I3s are. If it works well, it should work well. Right, yeah. you still have two big cores for IPC, and we'll see. The battery life should be <laughs> hopefully good with that. Yeah, that's that's what. Again, that's the way I put Alder Lake is this: they're confident about it at Intel, and it has to work because if it it doesn't catch up to at least close to Zen three overall, then my God, what's going to happen when Zen 4 comes out in a year? <laughs> I mean, Yeah. Don't they come out around the same time? Zen 4 and Alder Lake. Actually, Zen Alder 4... Lake should come out quarter three. Zen 4 should come to server at the very end of this year. And then desktop should come out probably quarter two next year, maybe quarter. Yeah, probably quarter two. Okay. Based on what I'm hearing, right? You know, it's not official. So I'm guessing maybe there will be a Zen free refresh with DDR5? Because they can't... Possibly. Yeah. Right? That's what I've heard is that they're considering like a Zen 3 Plus on AM5 actually before Zen 4 is even out to work out the bugs in the motherboards and get something. Which again, that's why all like has to be good because even if it just beats the 5900X, it's like AMD could just you know, refresh Zen 3 on like 6 nanometer or something, which I suspect they might do on AM5 with DDR5, and boom, they just matched Alder Lake at everything again. So, I, but it's, it's again, it should be a much better situation than what's going on right now, where actually, when this comes out, I actually got word from a source today that Rocket Lake's been delayed to the end of March, so. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that's okay. just eight cores and <laughs> uses more energy than a... <laughs> I mean, what? It uses like as much energy as Threadripper, so... <laughs> 
there's quite a lot there's quite a lot of people um looking forward to it to Rocket Lake like gamers like streamers from what I've seen yeah they shouldn't be because they want <laughs> I think they think that um game performance will be pretty good because of the benchmarks that Intel released 4% better hey what, I'm not going to bet that on that level, being a good percent every percent counts, No but 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 Intel's cherry picked benchmarks were 4% right so the, in the best case scenario, it's 4% better. It's not going to be the best case scenario when third-party people benchmark this. Uh, if you were a streamer, I would recommend you just buy Zen 3 now if you can get a hold of it because Rocket Lake will not be more than like a low single-digit percentage point better. And a lot of leaked benchmarks have shown that it's actually weaker, which someone at Intel told me it is. So, <laughs> So I don't recommend it. I don't recommend waiting for Rocket Lake. That's the way I'll put it. If it was priced right, everything's good at a good price. I would not recommend waiting for it because I don't think it's going to bring anything new to the table. Yeah. I mean, at this point... So maybe working USB ports, apparently, Sen has a problem with that, I've heard. Mm, yeah, I heard about that. Um, you know, at the moment, it's hard to get anything, so... <laughs> Which is what I'm saying. If you need something now, I wouldn't be waiting. I would just get Zen 3 if you can get what you want. Yep. If, if <laughs> it's a big F, big if, yeah. All right, you've gotten your your little free questions for me in, <laughs> but yeah, that is what I think about those subjects. And like I said, I am running on fumes, so <laughs> I think I think that should just about do it. Then um, I want to thank you for coming on the program. You're 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 remaining anonymous, so I assume you don't have anything to plug, right? Uh, no, I'm not on any social media anyway, so. Okay, well, I really appreciate you coming on to, again, be another one of those guests that expands the understanding of what a lot of this hardware is used for. And as usual, I think you had some interesting things to say about gaming, hardware, and development from the perspective of someone who's, you know, not making it, but touches similar, similar things to what, you know, games touch. And uh, yeah, I guess to everyone listening, thanks for listening. Yep. Thank you so much for having me on. Mm -hmm. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law's Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. 
and give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Frederick Cloud, James Crassa, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Bedlin, Phil S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegard, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Deseru, Daniel Hyde, Burt Garcia, Tara Reed, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Sean Balmer, My Name is Nobody, Robert, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchik, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Divider Symbol, Jan Rauner, Robert Duck, Street of Full, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Hardforum.com, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S. Blake, Aaron Keith, Terry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Viking R, Trevor Power, Stuart Lenya, Nanyan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederic, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Joseph Kerman, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Luca, Saber Zeber, Zlicky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garanid, and Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Frey Canoes Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Dehoo Hoo, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Floria, Louise Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Raul Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Deniscu, Dave McCoy, Malcolm Malev, Gabe Langner, Paul B., Morin Svensson, Andrew, Mo- Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Ruff Schneider, Mai Sharona, Aaron, Roman, Jacob Stankowitz, Jack Pim, Wakir Khan, Eshil Dar Epstein, Stefan Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Chris Lakata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy and G, Mads, Beachhorn, Benjamin O'Shley, and Greg Bataki. And of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>